This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 465th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a producer of film and television who is one of the more fascinating and to some degree polarizing figures in Hollywood and has been for decades. The Guardian has written, quote, To those of tender sensibilities, he is the devil incarnate, the man who helped destroy the movies, and an architect of our cultural stupidization. But to those who sit in Hollywood's counting houses, he's a man with his finger planted squarely on the movie-going audience's collective clitoris. He is money, close quote. Indeed, Playboy called him the most successful producer in history. Variety submitted that he is the only man in the business today to become famous strictly as a producer, and the New York Times said he could well be the most influential producer working today. And with credits including the following films, to say nothing of his many hits on TV, it's hard to argue. Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun, Bad Boys, The Rock, Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, Black Hawk Down, The Pirates of the Caribbean and National Treasure franchises, and most recently, a sequel 36 years in the making, one of the first movies since the outbreak of COVID to bring people of all ages back to movie theaters in large numbers, Top Gun Maverick, which, six months after its release, is still playing in theaters, is 2022's highest-grossing film by far, with nearly $1.5 billion taken in at box offices around the world, has received rave reviews. It's at 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, and might well garner a first-ever Oscar nomination in the category of Best Picture for my guest, Jerry Bruckheimer. Over the course of our conversation at his Santa Monica office, the 79-year-old and I discussed how advertising led him to producing. His roller coaster partnership from 1982 through 1995 on high-concept films with the late Don Simpson, a pair the New York Times called the top producers of the 1980s and the Los Angeles Times described as the kings of commercial cinema, making movies in which style was substance and audiences left the theater buzzing from adrenaline rushes? What led him to bet when others wouldn't on directors like Paul Schrader, Michael Mann, and Michael Bay, and on stars including Johnny Depp, Nicolas Cage, and Tom Cruise? Plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. 
All right, Jerry, thank you so much for doing sure. the podcast. Great to have you on this one. We begin right at the very beginning. Can you share for our listeners where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living? Uh, I was born in Detroit, Michigan. My dad was a salesman. My mom was a housewife. And I'm first generation. Both my parents came in the 30s from Germany to avoid the war. And it was a pretty... Uh, humble upbringing, right? I mean, I, from what I could gather reading, uh, there were not a lot of, not, was not a lot of money lying around. That's for sure. Yeah. I could uh, stretch my arms out and <laughs> hit both walls in my bedroom. Really? Yeah. Um, only child. What were your, I guess a big thing, it sounds like that happened pretty early on that maybe has shaped everything since in a way you have a, a generous uncle. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I had a number, a couple of yeah. them. And one of them had a, uh, a gift for you? Yeah, a camera. Yeah. yeah, he gave me a camera when I was about six or seven years old. And we have pictures of me with that camera hanging around my neck when I was very young. So I started taking photographs right away. And was that something that you thought as time went by you could do something with beyond a hobby? Or, I mean, when you go off to college, that was not, your major was psychology, right? That's right. That's right. So... And a minor in algebra and sociology, how far away can you get? Right. <laughs> but just the education, the confidence it gives you by going to college, you, you feel you can take anything on. Yeah. So at the time you graduated, what did you think you were going to do with the rest of your life? I didn't have a clue. Not a clue. Not a clue. I applied to some advertising agencies when I got back to Detroit and ended up in a mailroom for an advertising agency called McManus, John and Adams in those days and spent my time, you know, delivering mail, meeting a lot of people. And I would always take the weekend runs to the airport to pick up the president, the chairman. And it gives you insights in what people do and how they do it and be able to talk to them. So when it was time for somebody to get promoted out, I got the first shot to get out. Somebody wanted me in the television department. Had being involved with visual media beyond photography ever even occurred to you uh, prior to that? Or, you know, was this the first foray into that? It's sort of my first foray. Yeah. I always dreamt about being involved in TV or movies, but never thought it would be a reality. So from that TV uh, department at that point, is that where I've heard about a Pontiac ad that blew people away? Was that where you made that? Yeah, we did it at, at McManus, John and Adams, and it won a bunch of awards. It was a ripoff of Bonnie and Clyde, and it, it kind of pushed me towards New York. And specifically in New York, this was an offer at a really a top place on Madison Avenue to continue doing commercial advertisement work, or what, like basically how did that in turn lead to the first filmmaking? Well, it's, it's the first, when I first got there, I was on the Pepsi-Cola account, which was a big account, and won a, a ton of awards. And just me and meet a lot of people. And, and one of the uh, individuals that, that I met uh, told me a story about a, a person who was in my position there who went on to Hollywood to make movies. I said, well, if he can do it, why can't I? Right. And I worked with a bunch of different directors, and one director named Dick Richards 
and invited me to go with them for virtually no money. To, and to, you'd been making money. Yeah, I'd been doing decent yeah. in those days. Yeah. And I took the chance and didn't didn't look back. So for Dick Richards, this is basically, I don't know if it was always from the outset going to be three movies, but it's three movies, right, that you're producing for the first time, including working with Robert Mitchum, Farewell, My Lovely, which I guess is that, that's 1975. Just getting into film producing for the first time, what struck you the most? What it, did, was there something that you were immediately, obviously strong at about it? Something I was strong at? As far as producing? I'm still trying to figure that out today. <laughs> I'm, I don't know what I'm strong at. Uh, but I always had a keen sense for talent, whether it's in front of the camera, behind the camera, kind of see things a little differently. I'll see somebody walk in and nobody will see their their abilities and I'll pick up on it. Mm -hmm. And let's just say there's somebody listening to this who does not even know what a film producer, what that entails. What would What's the kind of short answer to that? Well, you know what a, a home builder does, right? He doesn't build the home himself. Goes to the bank, he gets a loan, hires an architect. He, the architect hires a contractor, and then they have people working on the house. Sort of, I'm the builder. Right. I find the material, go to the bank, which is studios or independent, and then hire the writer and the director, and it's sort of the same process. Now, there's sort of a stock character that people sometimes have in mind of the film producer as this, you know, boisterous, bombastic guy. I mean, I saw one of the books you have on your shelf here, not that he was a film producer, but it's sort of the P.T. Barnum right. uh, idea. Anyone who's been listening to this podcast, even just for the first few minutes, can tell that's not you. You're soft-spoken. Now, you had a partner who will come to who I think was maybe uh, made up the difference, but I just wonder for you, was there a model of a film producer that you had in mind as you were getting into this? Was there somebody from, you know, film history who you were already familiar with? Well, unfortunately, at the time, I still don't know enough about the, the various producers. Even today, I don't know what other producers do. I know they do really good work, mm -hmm. but I don't know how they do it. Right. So I just uh, put one foot in front of the other and kept moving. Yeah. So after the Dick Richards trilogy there... It seems like the first one where you're on your own that really took off, correct me if this is wrong, but I think American Gigolo, right? That's 1980, Paul Schrader. You guys would also do um, Cat People. But that's Paul early on. You did the next year Michael Mann's debut, Thief. I guess I just wonder, pre-Simpson Bruckheimer, which is we'll come to in a moment, did you like doing solo producing, or did you feel like it was something that would make sense to, to work with somebody else on? Well, you're always trying to learn. That's the best way to do things, kind of absorb information by being around people that are very smart. Just working with, with uh, Schrader, Michael Mann, again, that shows my ability to understand talent, to seek these people out, give them an opportunity and they've both gone on to have fabulous careers, and we've done it over and over again. Totally. So I mentioned the name Don Simpson. I guess for eternity, you two will be uh, linked together. How did you two first cross paths? Uh, I met him 
coming in, I was a screener, the harder they come. My ex-wife was a secretary for the head of music at Warner Brothers, a guy named Joe Boyd. And Joe was very close friends with Don Simpson. So Bonnie, my ex-wife, introduced me to, to Don, and that's how we first met. Now, at that time, Don... I know at one point he was the president of production at Paramount. Was he already transitioned at that point into just producing, or he was still in that job? No, he was um, a publicist Oh, at Warner Brothers. Okay. And after, when I got divorced, he had a big house in Laurel Canyon, and one of his roommates had moved out, so I moved in to the house. And he was up for a job at Paramount, and he borrowed my sport jacket because his room was a mess. He was the kind of guy that would have piles of books. He had a phenomenal vocabulary, studied vocabulary books, and he was an avid reader. So he had to step over the books to find his clothes, and he didn't have a clean sport jacket. So I was there and gave him the sport jacket, and he dazzled the people at Paramount because of his vocabulary. He's, he's a really brilliant, he was a brilliant man, and, and he really could express himself. And he talked about B.T. Barnum, he could really spin a tail. Right. So I guess then that was what led to that that time was the beginning of the present production period for him there. Then he goes solo as a producer there. And I, you know, it's interesting. I've read, I wasn't covering the, the beat at that time, but I mean, this is Eisner, Katzenberg, Don Steele, that era of Paramount. Who decided that you and uh, and Don should maybe not just be friends, but actually work together, I guess, for the first time. Uh, various people take credit for it. Yeah. <laughs> but I went to him and after he was he just left Paramount. And I said, why don't you produce this movie with me and see how it goes? And he said, yeah. And this was Flashdance. Flashdance, yeah. So Flashdance comes out in 83. And for people who I know sometimes people have uh, their their memories are a little faulty because they say, Jerry Bruckheimer makes movies for guys. Flashdance was, in you've said, in, in a way, a chick flick, right? Right. And we make movies that we try to entertain audiences. That's what we make movies. I mean, we've made movies like Glory Road and Remember the Titans and Veronica Guerin that you wouldn't think are shoot 'em ups Right, right. But, again, those are people that should be remembered, and we like to make movies that about people that... Ha- the public doesn't know right. and should know. So Flashdance was an R-rated, relatively low-budget movie that, how would you describe how it went over? It was a huge hit to the surprise of everybody. I remember going to Westwood and seeing the lines around the block at the theater. And then when you watch people walk out, they went to the record store because there were records mm-hmm. in those days and bought the album. So that's the first Simpson Bruckheimer movie. A year later is Beverly Hills Cop, which I know had been gestating for a while. But can we just note, in a year of The Terminator, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, many big movies, this was the biggest. And for actually, I think, decades, the biggest grossing R-rated comedy. Just because you can shed insight that probably nobody else can before it was Eddie Murphy, it was very nearly a couple other people, right? Yeah, it was originally it was Mickey Rourke. Then Paramount had a pay and play commitment with Stallone, which means they had to pay him if they didn't put him to work. And our script came in and they slipped it to him and he said, I'll do it. 
wanted to do it. He, and he rewrote the script. He's a very good writer. But the budget went way up. And they said, go tell Sly to cut the budget. Now, he's the biggest star in the world. I said, you guys go tell him. <laughs> cut the budget. He's not going to listen to me. Right, right. And, and, uh, so he dropped out. And they came to us and said, what do you want to do? I said, we told you we want to do. We want to give it to Eddie Murphy. We told you that before you gave it to Sly. Eddie, fortunately, we flew to New Jersey and pitched him the movie, and and he he was in. Yeah. So the third of these big three right out of the gate, I believe, would have been Top Gun. And now we're talking 36 years later. Obviously, we'll come to the this tremendously successful sequel, but 36 years ago, or even a little more, when you first embarked on this journey with that story and, and with Tom Cruise, let's just... Can you share, because I've read a few different accounts, somebody picked up a magazine, right? That was me. That was you. Yeah. Okay. And what, what caught your eye? Uh, it would look like Star Wars on Earth. There were these two planes, cockpit to cockpit. So this is amazing. I threw it on Don's desk. Don picked up the phone and called one of our executives. He said, get the rights to this. And that's how it all started. And it was really the cool factor was obvious from that first glance because it wasn't just the 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 planes but it was the even like the the shades right it was reflected in the shades of this guy That's right for the school um so with top gun i guess this is your first time working with both tony scott of maybe five times i believe and then also tom cruise how did these guys wind up with the jobs well, Tom is somebody we've been, when we first got the script in, we said, this is for Tom Cruise. Even though at that point, I mean, basically he was, what, the guy from Risky Business. That's right. So we, we loved him. But first we got Tony Scott involved. We'd seen The Hunger. We said, he's a visual artist. He could do something really special with this because it's airplanes and something that's just very exciting. So we got Tony he had a lookbook that he was using to show what he wanted. We got Tom in. We showed him everything. He wouldn't commit. Now, there are two stories here. There's my version and Tom's okay. version. So I arranged for Tom to fly with the Blue Angels. He, he drives up there in his motorcycle, and he takes off his helmet, and he's got a long ponytail. He's, he just finished Legend, or I think it was called, with Ridley Scott. And the pilots look at him and said, we're going to give this hippie a ride of his life. <laughs> so he gets down, he goes up and has a blast up there and goes to a payphone. This is El Centro. He calls me up, said, I'm in. I'm doing the movie. I love this. Mm-hmm. Now, he tells a different story. Okay, yeah, his, story okay. his story is he always going to do the movie. He was just stringing us out a little bit. <laughs> now, was there this part I, maybe was added on by somebody along the way, or it's or it's even funnier, but... Did he essentially lose his lunch during that flight? You'd have to ask him, but that's a good possibility. <laughs> okay. that, that doesn't scare him. Yeah, no. So, And now he's a big pilot, I guess, yeah. right? Flies so, everything. Yeah. So Top Gun comes out, and I guess what had been your greatest expectations for what it could do versus then what actually happened? You know, I always hope for the best, expect the worst, and, and fortunately that one— did really well. Yeah. So here we are with with you and Don. First three out of the gate are all huge. And people start, 
I guess, increasingly saying, you know, who are these guys? And the coverage at the time was always noting you guys dressed alike. Right. You drove the same kind of Ferrari. You even shared a desk, I believe. Yeah. Um, but you were actually quite different people, as we mentioned earlier. What would you say were the greatest similarities and the greatest differences? Well, the, the things that are very similar is our taste. Our taste in movies, our taste in aesthetics, our taste in clothes, our taste, taste in art, our taste in interests were in the line. But we led totally different lifestyles. He was a, you know, confirmed bachelor and he led a pretty interesting life. But he was maybe the best salesman you ever want to meet. He'd come in a room and just take it over and, and he'd pitch stuff and he'd, he'd spin a tail about it. And it. Sometimes it veered off what the actual idea was. Right. He'd just tell, and we'd come out of there and say, Don, that's not the movie. What are we going to do? Right. <laughs> well, so is that where the, what, what is, what is Mr. Inside and Mr. Outside about? Well, I think that it, it depends. He was, he was kind of, he, they asked me this this morning, but, and I got it wrong. He is Mr. Inside because he was president of production at Paramount. He understood the politics and how everything worked. So he, he and I would sit in a meeting at a studio and I'd walk out and say, that meeting went great. And he said, no, it didn't. <laughs> here's, here's what they're going to do. And he was right every time. And Mr. Outside meant that you're the guy who actually puts it into practice. Yeah, I made it happen. Okay. So... Another thing that was happening as you guys were taking off with your careers was this term that I'm sure, I know it still follows you everywhere, high concept. Right. What is that? Where did that begin? And as you, as you would explain it, what does it actually mean? Because I've read 50 different people's impressions of it. High concept is if you can tell what the movie's about in a sentence, in a short phrase, that's considered high concept. And why was that kind of groundbreaking? Why was that important? Well, it's about advertising. It's about making impressions on people. And if you can capsulize your story in, in very few words that get, puts images in people's minds and excites them, that's a concept they want to go see. It hasn't changed. Can you give me and our listeners what the one sentence might have been just to, so they can uh, imagine this for- You'd have to wake up Don to get this. <laughs> wake up, okay. But go ahead. Well, I mean, those first three, I mean, everybody knows those movies. They know what they're about. What would the high concept have been to explain them to somebody who knew nothing about them? Well, Beverly Hills Cop was a, a cop from Detroit who gets thrown into Beverly Hills and has to deal with whole different class of society and disrupts it. Mm -hmm. Top Gun is an inside look into a fighter pilot's life with Tom Cruise from Risky Business. Mm -hmm. Flashdance, uh, a girl who wants to be a ballerina who has to work in a, in a bar and dance in a bar, so. Now, I guess up to that point, in turn, so it's all, it's all about selling the idea. Come, as you say, it comes back to advertising. I guess Days of Thunder, people started to present when they, when they heard it's you, you guys, Tony Scott and Tom Cruise, this is Top Gun on Wheels, right? That's the, was that essentially the high concept there? No, I don't oh. think we ever used that. But it's, it's, it's a movie, again, an inside look into, into a world of stock car racing. Mm -hmm. So that one was 
ultimately released in 1990, but I guess it seems like it was maybe the the first one of your partnership where there were, you know, major challenges. And I guess it was uh, a little over budget, a little uh, underperforming ultimately, but the idea, was that why for the next few years you, there were fewer movies coming out or was that because that was the beginning of, of Don having real challenges? No, I, there, there was a writer's strike. Mm -hmm. I think there was an actor's strike. We just couldn't get things going. We couldn't, the industry was kind of in, in, not in great shape. Mm -hmm. And I think there were management changes at Paramount. And then you guys go over to Disney. Yeah. But those aren't excuses. No, but, no, no. You don't, you don't need the to, truth. you don't need to excuse yeah. anything. But I, uh, one other thing that, you know, was speculated about in that time was that perhaps you and or Don might want to expand into directing. I will read something that was in a 1993 LA Times article, which they claimed that you two were planning, quote, a tandem directing debut on Robert Towns' FBI corruption tale, Witness to the Truth for Disney, close quote. Is that true? I think we talked about it at the yeah. time. Don was really hell-bent on directing. He really wanted to do it. And he felt my expertise would help him, so we do it together. Because I, I wouldn't be good at it because I, I have, I'm ADD. I can't, I can't sit there and do take after take after take. That's why we make so many movies and so many TV shows. Right, I'm right. constantly <laughs> like a bee buzzing to the next one. Right. Now, Don also wanted to, I guess, get into acting, right? Because Days sure. of Thunder, he had a, a part in. Yeah, he loved being in front of the camera. Look at it. He was, uh, he was a showman. He yeah. wanted to be in front of the camera all the time. <laughs> And he thought acting and, and directing would give him that kind of gratification. Right. So, I mean, it's, I, I know it's probably not the most fun topic, but just because it's part of the story that we've been telling, I mean, mm -hmm. what, when did it become apparent to you that there were problems that he was dealing with to such a degree that you ultimately had to sever the relationship? I believe in December 95, a month before he passed away. Well, a doctor had died at his house. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is enough. He's got to get his act together. And sometimes the people closest to you have to say, either you change or I have to move on. And that's what we did. So, I mean, the rest is history. And, but I will say, I, I was, I learned prepping for this, that while the professional relationship was over, you were still in touch right sure. up until the end, right? Yeah, we're good friends. We're yeah. always good friends. When you heard what had happened, that he had passed away, were, was it a was it a shock or was it just sort of a acceptance that this was where it had been heading? You think it that's where it's heading, but when you get the call, it's a shock. Mm -hmm. I was on the set of The Rock at the time, mm -hmm. filming with Michael Bay and Sean Connery. When it happened. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. There are people, including a former colleague of mine who I know you know who has interviewed you, who uh, Stephen Galloway, who at the time had, he's now acknowledged, at that time, I sort of very mistakenly wrote off Jerry. I said, without the two of them, it can't continue that the success. And he's Eden Crow for that. And a lot of people did. Were you at all apprehensive that things might not be able to continue as as wonderfully as they had been up to that point when you were solo? Or by that point, had you kind of gained enough confidence that you could do it on your own? You know, I always had confidence in myself. I always took chances. Just coming to New York, that was a, coming from a small, from Detroit, I don't think, I, I, I think, I don't know if I'd ever been on a plane really? when I flew to, to uh no, I might have been on a plane a few times. When I went to college, I hadn't been on a plane. And then you get to New York and you thrive in a very cutthroat business, which is advertising, which builds your confidence. And then you make some movies and some of them work and you learn, you have knowledge. You're always worried and nervous that you can't do it. But I really believe that I could carry on and have a career, not the kind of career that I ended up having. Right, right. So... Well, because there really wasn't a model for that. I mean, the, there have been very successful producers, but not in the not in the you know modern era in the way that you've done it. And I guess we should say that pretty much you mentioned that a few of these were already in motion at the time Don died, so The Rock. But I mean, the the whole collaboration with you and Michael Bay, for instance, was I think just essentially beginning at that time. And I'll just run off a few titles for listeners to picture how many hits you guys have had together. Bad Boys in 95, which I believe I'm just going to mention as an aside, I read Dana Carvey and John Lovitz were originally. Yeah, we have a test somewhere in the archives of them doing a scene. (laughs) Well, so that's 95. Unfortunately, Dana dropped out. Dropped out. And then, of course, Martin Lawrence and Will Smith. Dangerous Minds, Crimson Tide, The Rock, Armageddon in 98, Pearl Harbor in 2000, just you guys took on some pretty ambitious, large-scale things together that that uh, almost uniformly did very well. And I just wonder, how did you and he first cross paths, and what is what is it about your sensibilities or or something else that has led to that kind of success? I could be wrong, but Michael directed a video for us for Days of Thunder. And I looked at his, when I saw his reel, I said, boy, is he gifted. He's a gifted visualist. And I believe it's not radio, it's film. You want to see something unique and different. And he has a unique perspective and still does. So that's somebody that I felt could make a really interesting movie. And it's funny because... He came to me and he sat down when we first met and he said, you know, my mom knows your wife. It, his mom is a placement counselor 
And my wife went to, to meet her about our daughter to see if, what school she should go to. And she said to him, you know, my son's a director. My wife goes, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody. So then he shows yeah. up in my office. It was kind of a funny story. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, to come to your point about it being a visual medium, like, uh, you know, I don't know why this should surprise people. It's sort of like, duh. But there were things where, you know, people, I'll give you an example that's come up on this podcast before with Ben Affleck. Even though he's playing a guy in Armageddon who's, I forget, it's a very blue-collar profession. Right. He's, he recalls that you were very financially supportive of him replacing his teeth, right? Now, why, just, just to spell it out for anyone who needs to understand, coming back to what you're saying, it's a visual medium, but what's that emblematic of? He's got a million-dollar smile. Right. And that just helped him. Right. He just gave him a little boost. Right. But he's got a great smile, and he lights up the screen. He'd have done it without the teeth, but I think the teeth gave him uh, even a little more, little edge. Yeah. Now, similarly, you know, why not put beautiful women in a, in a movie? Like, these are the, some of the, well, the, or great songs, or, you know, things where sometimes people, you know, they, they describe, like, the, the uh, style of your films. And I, it, I guess it does all in some way come back to the roots in advertising, That's right? That's right. Sure. It's the visual roots. And I have a certain aesthetic that I try to get talent that has a very similar one to make our movies. So if Michael Bay is one of the most frequent collaborators, I guess the other is probably Tony Scott, who we mentioned not only Top Gun and Days of Thunder, but in between Beverly Hills Cop 2 and then in subsequent years, Crimson Tide in 95, Enemy of the State in 98, Deja Vu in 2006. He obviously had a, an untimely uh, passing in 2012. But I, I did not realize that at the time he died, you and he were essentially talking about Top Gun 2, right? Yeah. Actually, we were on a scout on a Friday. We'd gone to Fallon, Nevada with Tom and talked to the Top Gun pilots and flew back. And that was Friday night and Sunday we lost him. And there was kind of no indication that something was amiss. No. It's, uh, yeah. He was excited about going to work and do the movie. Mm. Now, his brother you've also worked with. Yes. And who also has roots in commercials and advertising, right, Ridley? Black Hawk Down in 2001, you know, critics have not always been kind to your movies. That's probably the one, I guess it's fair to say, that they were... The kindest too. Um, I think it's probably the the closest prior to Top Gun Maverick that one of your films had come to being recognized in the you know let's say the Oscars or things like that. Does it? Do you read reviews? Does it bother you if critics don't get this? Or if they're not on the same sort of uh, track as you are with what you're trying to do? I'll tell you. The good reviews are never good enough, and the bad reviews can be devastating, so why bother? Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, you just move on. Yeah. But with something like Black Hawk Down, I guess is that what you're ultimately, when you set out to make a movie, if you can make something that appeals to both large numbers of people and, you know, whatever, tastemakers, is that the ultimate goal? 
The ultimate goal is to entertain an audience. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And that's what we try to do in all our films, mm -hmm. try to get people to feel different, transport them from one place to another, make them feel something, give them completion at the end. Not always a good ending, but completion. Mm -hmm. That's how we approach it. Mm -hmm. Everything that we do is, is based around what we feel an audience, even though we don't know what an audience wants, but we want to give them a bang for their buck. Now, just something, this is a little random, but I, I, I came across a comment of yours prepping for this. Quote, we budget about a million dollars for reshoots in every one of our films, close quote. There's sort of a attitude in the business sometimes that reshoots are a sign of trouble. But in fact, you've seemed to, you, you know, as that quote suggests, you embrace that they are inevitable in some cases or necessary to make something better. Can you just give that side of the argument why it's worth embracing them? As smart as we think we are, we're, we're not that smart. An audience <laughs> is a lot smarter collectively. Right. We finished Armageddon and we previewed it and we got these cards back. All these girls sent these cards back and said he never gave her an engagement ring. You know, these, <laughs> these male who made this movie, they couldn't figure that out. Right. So we went and shot a scene where he gives her a ring. But that's just a small example of what happens when an audience gets together and looks at your work. Things you take for granted and things you think is not going to matter, it matters to them. And so how, how do you, what's your attitude towards previews, test screenings, that kind of thing? Do you always do it? Yes. And I shouldn't say that. Okay. Always. I don't think we previewed Black Hawk Down. Oh, okay. Interesting. Because it was a dark story and I yeah. don't know what you'd get out of it. Now, how often when you go back to a movie after you've thought you've got it done, but then it, then you're thinking now in terms of marketing the movie, I'm trying to remember which one I'd heard where essentially largely for the purposes, I guess, of, of the trailer, you went and blew up a few more cities or something. Was that Armageddon? That was Armageddon. We felt that the movie needed a little more excitement in certain places. So that's where we, yeah. we added some stuff. We sent Michael to Indy, I think. Now, prior to, in terms of the movies we've talked about up to this point, one of the things that I'd kind of taken away from the way you talked about Pearl Harbor was that that was just maybe the most you'd bitten off up to that point. What made that one as challenging and ambitious and as it was? Well, you have to get the planes, right? Mm -hmm. You need the aircraft carriers a lot of hardware. But I'll tell you, Black Hawk Down was more challenging. Really? Because we had to get the cooperation of the Moroccan government, the Moroccan military, the U.S. government and and their ambassador who was there, who wasn't, well, it was, she, unfortunately, she wasn't ambassador. She was the charge A. There was no ambassador. Hadn't been stationed there yet. I think it's right after Clinton won. Those, those were really tough times. We were making a movie called Black Hawk Down, and we couldn't get the Blackhawks in. So <laughs> Would have been a problem. Yeah. yeah. So we figured that out. It's a long story. but You seem to be very good at navigating. Maybe this is an essential part of being a, a top producer, but navigating what I guess you would call red tape. Like, I mean, I, I ha when we, we were setting up here this today, I happened to notice, and I'd heard things about this before, but I mean... Both Bush administrations you've interacted with, and I think the Clintons, and some of that's necessary for 
you know, even like with, with the original Top Gun, right? Just getting access to things like aircraft carriers and stuff like that. You, not everyone is able to make that happen. Well, that's, I think, because of our appreciation for the military. They keep our shores safe so you can sleep at night, that there's out, somebody out there defending us. And I just read a quote today. If you want peace, prepare for war. And that's what our military does. And I, I tip my hat to them and try to do what I can to, to honor what they do. And so it's not a, just a coincidence that you that your movies have so frequently dealt with things related to the military. No, not at all. One of the things that I think was is most notable when when people look back at the turn into the 21st century is how TV went from being the kind of redheaded stepchild of Hollywood to being in some cases as as great and artistically ambitious and all of that as as the best movies. And you were there when that happened. I mean, what was it that inspired you, I guess, around the turn of the century to venture into TV producing and, and to not only do that, but to bring film production quality to it in a way that I don't think anyone really had done before? Well, I saw ER mm-hmm. and I thought to myself, we could do that. <laughs> so we... I hired a head of television and hired another one, and we got CSI on the air, and that kind of became what Anthony Zyker, who created CSI, calls feature television. Mm-hmm. And what that entails is what, doing, making it in the same ways that you make films, or how would you describe it? Again, choices. Mm-hmm. Picked a director who's an English director and made, I think, one or two movies, but they were so stylish and so interesting-looking. And we had a hard time convincing CBS to hire him because he hadn't done television. And they just have a list and they go down that list. And if you're not on a list, you don't work. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, we persuaded him, uh, the powers that be, to to hire him. And it worked out for everybody. Well, and, and so there were the variations of CSI. There's Without a Trace, right? There's... Um, the amazing race and the reality stuff that you've done. Um, at one point, I think Les Moonves had said the, the B in CBS should be for Bruckheimer because you guys were programming everything for the network. But how do you like making TV versus making film? And how, when you have so many of these things going on at, at the same time with both media, how do you personally juggle it? Are you Do you have to sort of step back your involvement uh, on certain things, like just how do you how do you do that? Well, television is, is a well-oiled machine. Uh, Christiane Reed is is just took over and is running, and she's fantastic. So she and she has a staff, and she deals with all the issues and the creativity that they come up with, and oversees everything. But I read everything. I read every script. There've been over two thousand scripts. I watched every I watch every episodes. Television is a little different because in television, you go through these processes. It's called a notes process. And they note you and note you and note you. So by the time it gets to me, they've really driven it to something that's really interesting to read. So it's, you rarely get notes from me occasionally. But I'll also, also, when I look at the episodes, if something doesn't strike me right, I'll give them a note to fix it. Yeah. I guess something started around the in the early 2000s that 
many people thought wrote off as a ridiculous idea, which was to take a Disney ride and make a movie franchise or well, make a movie first of of it. Of course, Pirates of the Caribbean. And I just I think of all the what somebody could call, you know, crazy ideas that you've managed to make into successful things. This might, on the face of it, have seemed the the craze most out there. Was, I thought it was going to end my career. Did you? When okay, no, that's to, what I wondered. When, yeah. when they came to me and said, uh, we're going to make a movie about a theme park ride, and I read the script, and I said, yeah, it's a good script, it's a pirate movie, but we got to do something a little more special and more interesting. So Elliot and Rossio came in and pitched the idea that the 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 uh, pirates turn the skeletons in the moonlight and you have to return a treasure rather than steal a treasure. Thought that was a unique idea. And they're fantastic writers. They wrote Shrek. So that's where we went. But when they came to me, they'd just done Haunted Mansion and they did Country Bears, which are obviously two of their rides, and they both didn't do great at the box office. So I said, we got to do something special. They had a special idea. Then we came up with the idea of putting Johnny Depp in it. So... Johnny at the time had done Edward Scissorhands. He did all these artistic films, and he's a great actor. Putting him in the movie would signal to an audience that, wait a second, what's he doing in a movie about a ride? Now you ask, why did he do the movie? He had a daughter, and he wanted to make something for her. So he made Pirates of the Caribbean. Lucky for us. Yeah, no, for all of us. But I then, guess... Then he had Lily Rose. Thank <laughs> yeah, you, Lily Rose. Who's now on her own career, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you were so... Something so convinced you that he was an, an essential ingredient that you apparently said, I'm not doing it unless he is allowed to be cast as this, in this role. Why were you so sure that... Was it that he would bring an edge that other people couldn't bring? Yeah, he'd bring an edge and... and he brings something that is unique and special because he's a unique actor and picks interesting projects. He's, a very, he's an artist. Also, he's somebody that has a wonderful sense of humor and he's a great mimic. So he decided for this role, since he was watching cartoons a lot with his daughter, he was part Pepe Le Pew <laughs> and part Keith Richards. Keith, because of the way he speaks... Johnny mimicked him, or partially mimicked him, and he brought all that fun to it, and that kind of a character that was only only looking out for himself until the the, the key moment when he would he would do the right thing. Now the studio was not as sold on this idea, even once they were seeing rushes. Is that fair to say? Yeah. What happened is first he came in and we presented his outfit and everything to the heads of Disney, and they looked at him and they said, oh, Jesus, what is he doing? He had all these gold teeth. So we convinced him to take a few gold teeth out. I mean, he, I mean, he wanted to do some crazy stuff. Right. But, but fortunately, we, we held him back. His crate team him back a little bit. And then when they saw the rushes, they said, what is this? Is he gay? Is he straight? Is he drunk? What, what are you doing? Because <laughs> rushes are very deceiving. You see the same performance over and over again. And some of them are broad and some of them are subtle. So we cut together a sequence or two for them and, and relayed their fears. Got them on board, yeah. Now, would you guys do another Pirates with, with Johnny? Is that in the cards? I would love to. Yeah. I think he's gifted and he's a terrific guy. Yeah. The other franchise, which we should not forget, was launched at almost the same time, I think a year later, 
was National Treasure, which did quite well in its own right. Uh, Nicholas Cage, and I think that was sort of you guys had had a, a history with him of I, The Rock, Con Air. You know, I, these were not the sorts of movies he was making before he got into business with you. So, what just in terms of your eye for talent that we were talking about earlier, what made you say Nicholas Cage is an action star? He's a big guy. Yeah, <laughs> you don't realize how he's over six feet tall. I bet he's works out. He's in great shape. He, and he's a quirky actor. You never know what he's going to do. We always try to, unless you're telling a true story, and even then you try to do it, is infuse humor. And Nicholas is somebody that can infuse humor into anything. Kind of like Miles Teller is the same way oh, yeah. in Top Gun. He can do that too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so for the last several years between the Pirates movies and the National Treasure movies and many others, you've been plenty busy. But I wonder when you first started thinking, all right, it might be time to revisit Top Gun and why it was not until it was that that actually took off. Well, Tony was interested in it and that kind of motivated us to to get started on something. But it was a long road. Losing Tony, you, you don't want to continue for a while. And then we talked to a bunch of directors. We had, had a couple of ideas and Joe Kaczynski came up with an idea about Goose's son, which we'd been toying with prior to that, but we had Can we just note that he knew Tom from Oblivion five years ago? Yeah. Okay. So we went to Paris where he was filming Mission Impossible, Joe and myself. Joe had worked a, out a lookbook that, of what the picture he felt was going to look like and very interesting, beautiful shots that he found. He showed him that, he pitched the story, and Tom looked at him and said, look, if we do this... It's got to be real. We have to fly the planes. We have to, actors have to prepare for this. That's the way, to, and Joe said, I wouldn't make it any other way. So Tom picked up the phone, called the people at Paramount and said, I want to make another Top Gun. Needless to say, they were excited. Yeah, I bet. Jim Giannopoulos, that didn't, yeah. he, he, he didn't have to earn, work too hard for his salary on that one. Um, now, here's something in a 1990 LA Times article where they're sitting down with you and Don. Don was, I guess they, they asked both of you, is a top, if a Top Gun 2 was on your agenda? And so again, we're talking 32 years ago. Don says, quote, no, Jerry and I have an agreement. We don't make sequels to our movies. We want to do fresh and better, close quote. And then he added, quote, if Paramount has a Top Gun 2 in mind, I'm interested in buying a ticket to it because it certainly won't be starring Tom Cruise or produced by the guys who invented it. Close quote. That's uh, Don for you. That's <laughs> he takes a position, doesn't he? Right. So why, at one time, were you guys? It seems. Well, he was. He was. That was his quote. <laughs> okay. Not right. My right. Quote. So did you? You felt differently all along. Uh, absolutely. If you can come up with a good story and a good idea and put those characters in in front of an audience and show them where they are and entertain them, I'm all there. Okay. And obviously, they, the the public can't get enough of them between the sequels to Pirates and National Treasure and, and of course, uh, now Top Gun 2. There was, in those days, and one of the reasons he made that quote, in those days, if you made a sequel, they would cut your budget by 30 or 40%. Why? Yeah. They felt they were, it was a cash grab. Ah. And that's what, that's what the studios were doing. They were doing a cash grab. We don't approach it that way. We make them as good as we can make them. And that's, and we get convince them to spend the money that 
the movie needs. To that point, it's a tough call to make, I guess. And I, I, I feel a lot first, I've, I've seen a lot of people inevitably compare the original Top Gun to this one because they're both so great and kind of come out that this one might be even better. Where do you fall on that debate if you have a gun to your head? I'd say I love them both. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> now, this one, the newer one, was supposed to come out. I, I'm looking at a poster across your hallway. I think it was June 2020. Right. That obviously got derailed <laughs> um, by COVID. So was that actually a blessing in disguise in the sense that obviously nobody wanted to go through COVID. It was terrible. But this was the movie that ultimately convinced people to come back to the movie theaters, right? Well, there were a number of movies, not just us, but I think we were instrumental in getting an older audience to come back to the theaters. And what they did is they brought their kids and then it spread to other kids. And then it just was like wildfire. It just took off. It's still going. It's still in 200 some theaters. Realistically, if we gave you truth serum, what number can we say would you have thought this movie would do versus what it's done? Because I don't think, uh, did you ever imagine that it could no. do as big as it's done? I don't, I don't put a number on it, okay. really, first, first of all. And we don't know what they're going to do. The only people that know what they're going to do is an audience. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. If they think they know, they're, they'll be wrong more than they're right. So why do you think, though, forget about the specific numbers, why did, in such large numbers, people respond to this movie now? It's about the emotion. It's an emotional movie. It's about the verisimilitude of what the way we made it, the group of actors that are in it, and the emotion, the emotion, how Tom plays that part with such honesty. It's seamless for him. I mean, his performance is seamless. He plays the, the high-intensity scenes with real conviction, and then when he's in the scene with Iceman, it's really emotional, or when he's in bed with Jennifer Connelly and he tells that story about Goose's son, it's emotional. And, and that's why people resonated. People had tears in their eyes mm-hmm. during those periods. And then you give them the excitement. It, it's a character piece. It really is. It's about Maverick f- searching for something that he doesn't know he's searching for and finds it by the end of the movie. So you've worked with just about every big star. What What is it about Tom Cruise that a guy can, oh, first of all, he looks basically the same as he did 36 years ago, at least on screen. Also, though, the fact that a person can appeal to enough audience moviegoers to open a movie huge 36 years apart, I'm thinking there's, I can't think of another person that in in this era who could do that. I mean, what, what you kind of have to do, and I went through this thought exercise with the person who I saw the movie with, is who today, in 2022, would people still be as excited, who, who's opening a movie at number one today, would people still be as excited to see in 2058, uh, right? That would be, I, it's just unfathomable. So what is it about Tom Cruise that makes him such an exception to the rule? Look, Nobody's more talented. Nobody works harder. Nobody cares more. Nobody wants to entertain an audience the way he does. He's laser-focused. He's somebody who 
doesn't suffer fools well. He wants to make sure he's making the best movie. And if people aren't helping to make that movie, we got to find people that are. That's what he, he, he loves to be on a set. He's been shooting Mission for about over a year now, I think. And that's his, he's got a gift. Some actors have it. He's got this gift. And the accuracy in his performance, the, the way he trained all the pilots for three months, but also his, his ability to emote and show his pain in the, in the scene with, with Iceman, with Val Kilmer, that's the magic sauce of the movie. There's another thing that primarily people in the business will notice, which is that at the beginning of the movie, they see produced by not just Jerry Bruckheimer, but Don Simpson. Don Simpson has now been gone for 26 years. That's a quite a tribute. What What made you decide to include that and what would Don have made of this moment that this that you and the film franchise that you guys started are enjoying? Look, we started this thing together. You can't make a sequel without putting his name on it. I mean, a lot of the, the magic of that first one was came out of his his brain, his energy. Again, you know, we pitched it. What happened initially is we developed a script and the powers at Paramount at the time didn't want to make it. So we had the script that we loved. For the original. For the original. And they didn't want to make it because there was a TV series that Greg Nelson, I think, was in it, if my memory is correct, about the Air Force and it tanked. So the wisdom was that nobody cares about aviators. They left the studio. Ned Tannen comes in. And he says, what do you guys have? And we said, we have this thing, Top Gun, Tony Scott. And he said, okay, come, up, come by the house and pitch me the story. So we go up to his house. I don't remember exactly where it was, but so Tony's with us. He just got off a plane from London and he's just zonked. Can't, so Ned turns to him and says, tell me the story. And all Tony was doing was petting his dog. <laughs> And so Don jumps in and just spun a tail. I don't know if it was anywhere close to the movie we made, but he he uh, certainly dazzled Ned. And he, he, as we walked out, he said, I don't know if this guy can direct. I know he can pet a dog, so I'm <laughs> counting on you two. Oh, man. How about just one other crazy thing? You in now almost 50 years in filmmaking, right, have been recognized in a lot of ways. I know there's the uh, star on the Walk of Fame, right? And I think the handprints, footprints, and different NATO, National Association of Theater Owner honors and things like that. One thing that has not yet happened is an Oscar nomination. Is that something that you would mean something to you? Of course. You all want, always want to be rewarded for your work. Mm -hmm. We get rewarded financially, mm -hmm. and it's also to be rewarded by your peers, mm -hmm. people who make movies and care about movies the way we do. So you'd, lo you'd love to be recognized. Uh, I mean, it seems pretty unfathomable that in this year, a movie that's as successful and as terrific as Top Gun Maverick would, would not, there's now 10 best picture categories. It would be the greatest thing for the Oscars telecast too, to have a movie that people actually liked that's nominated. But um, I guess just with the last minute, 
just the first thing that comes to your mind about three things. First of all, looking back on the career, biggest regret. It's always about more. (laughs) (laughs) The years that we didn't make movies, those are the years that I regret. Was there one that got away, though? I heard maybe Silence of the Lambs was... Silence of the Lambs, we had an opportunity to work on to, to get the book. And I just, at the time, I didn't want to be in that world. It was a very dark world. Yeah. So we kind of shied away from it. What's the upcoming project of yours that you're most excited about? And there's so many. There's not just one. We're finishing a movie for Disney Plus called Young Woman in the Sea, starring Daisy Ridley. It's about the first female to swim in the English Channel in 1926. And her journey is unbelievable, what she had to go through and how she changed athletics for women. She had the biggest parade down Fifth Avenue for an athlete ever, ever. When you see the black and white footage, you won't believe it. Wow. And nobody's ever heard of her. Going back to what I always say about telling stories about people that should be remembered. And finally, will there ever be a day when Jerry Bruckheimer says, I'm retired, or are they going to have to cart you out of this office? <laughs> they almost want to cart me out of the office. I mean, someday that when you start stop making movies that people want to see, they'll they'll roll you out of here. It doesn't doesn't seem uh, in the in the near future. But I uh, congratulations on the movie. It's so great, and thank you very very much for taking the time to do this. I well, thank it. you for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.